Exclusions and Limitations of Liability. Welcome to this podcast. I'm Paul Darling. I'm one of the two general editors of Wilmot Smith on Construction Contracts, the fourth edition of which has just been published. For those of you watching on video, can I show you a copy of the book? Uh, beautiful blue colour. Um, and tell you a little bit about it. We intend this to be an authoritative text on construction law, 21 chapters addressing all aspects of construction law, and we've written it to be accessible to practitioners of all ages, stages, and interests. The book features 26 consultant editors, special advisors, and contributors, uh, based mainly at 39 Essex Chambers. Today's focus is on uh, exclusion and limitation of liability clauses. The chapter on this topic has received kind comment from Lord Justice Coulson, describing it as one of the very best sections of the whole book. I'm joined today by the editors of uh, that chapter, uh, Jonathan Bellamy and Johan Ho. Uh, they um, have, well, they'll be discussing with me and explaining some of the key points about the chapters, the chapter, I beg your pardon, and how that has changed since the third edition. Jonathan, say a few words about yourself. Paul, thank you very much indeed for that introduction. I'm Jonathan Bellamy. I'm a barrister and chartered arbitrator practising at 39 Essex Chambers in construction law, in litigation, arbitration and adjudication. Johan. Thank you very much, Paul. And I'm also a barrister here at 39 Essex Chambers. I'm a former solicitor and I specialise in commercial and construction law, again, both in litigation and arbitration. Thank you very much. We're going to have four themes that we're going to quickly look at in the context of the law as it now is and what's changed and what's been included in this edition. The first is going to be the modern interpretation of exclusion and limitation of liability clauses and the uh, the court's approach to them. Uh, Johan, would you be good enough to, uh, to, to introduce this for us? Yes, certainly. So... Courts used to strain to find a way to make such clauses inapplicable because of the perceived inequity, but this is very much not the modern approach, and that was made clear in the famous case of Photo Production Limited and Secure Core Transport Limited in 1980, so that's been the modern position for some time. And more recent authorities have emphasised that such clauses are interpreted like any other term in the contract, and that's very much the approach today in the TCC and the commercial court. That's absolutely right, Johan. Um, it's absolutely, it's no coincidence at all, at all that Photo Productions was decided in 1980, shortly after the introduction of UCTA. UCTA gave the court a structured statutory basis instead of simply the instrument of interpretation to disregard unfair exclusion clauses. The modern approach is to recognise that exclusion clauses are not inherently evil but rather have a legitimate commercial function in allocating risk and improving efficiency. They've been described in recent Court of Appeal Authority as an integral part of a broader scheme for allocating losses between the parties. In particular, in large construction and infrastructure contracts, where the parties are of equal or comparable bargaining power. Again, recent Court of Appeal cases such as Good Life Foods and Persimmon Homes. The courts now recognise the role of insurance in allocating risks and take that into account in the reasonable assessment in UCTA. There is still a difference in the approach to indemnity clauses, though, so one must draw the distinction. 
and indemnity clauses are subject to specific guidelines in their interpretation, set up by Lord Morton in the 1952 Canada Steamship case. And in brief, what that does is to use a stricter approach in interpreting such clauses. Now, while Canada Steamship was decided more than half a century ago, its correctness and applicability has been affirmed by the Court of Appeal very recently in the Persimmon Holmes case. That's right, Johan, and that's a distinction that we draw out in the chapter, isn't it? Um, Indemnity clauses are designed, ultimately, to have the same effect as exclusion clauses by providing that the innocent party is to indemnify the contract breaker against the consequences of its default or negligence. However, this this different treatment is well justified in relation to negligence. It is one thing to agree that A should not be liable to B for the consequence of A's negligence. It is, however, another thing to agree that B should compensate A for the consequences of A's own negligence. It's very interesting. Thank you both. Seems to me the key takeaways from that are threefold. Firstly, that the modern approach of the courts is to, is to construe exclusion and limitation of liability clauses like any other contractual term. And anyone who looks for the principle of contra proferentem is going to have a long search ahead of them. This is, secondly, this is, of course, subject to the statutory protections in the various consumer legislation, starting with the Unfair Contract Terms Act. And thirdly, however, it's critical to remember that uh, the court still uh, approaches indemnity clauses differently and more rigorously. The second of our uh, four topics is um, discussion, please, about clauses limiting liability to a fixed sum or percentage of the contract sum. Those of you who know anything about my practice will know that I argued in the 1980s a kept marvellous case called Temlock against Errol Properties, where the parties have put a, in the liquidated damages space in the contract the word nil, uh, and the Court of Appeal was persuaded ultimately that that meant that the parties had completely excluded their damages. So whenever I hear this topic discussed, I have a wistful feeling for Temlock and Errol Properties Limited. Uh, Johan, would you like to start? Yes. So these clauses are are common and the authorities recognise it. What the Unfair Contract Terms Act does is to lay down guidelines for determining reasonableness in two situations. The first is where there's a term limiting a person's liability to a specific sum of money, or in Paul's case, to nil. Or secondly, where a term in the contract for the sale or supply of goods is subject to the requirement of reasonableness. And that kicks in when there's an attempt um, to exclude business liability for loss or damage um, other than death or personal injury. Yes. Where a contract term, um, by reference to which a person seeks to restrict his liability to a specific sum, is subject to the requirement of reasonableness. It's important to note that the court must, and it's obliged, to have regard to the following. First, the resources which um, the party could expect to have available to him for the purpose of meeting the liability should it arise. And secondly, how far it was open to him to cover himself by insurance. In applying this second guideline, the court considers the availability of insurance at the time of contracting to the party seeking to restrict liability, rather than that party's actual insurance position. So, Jonathan, what's new? What's changed in the authority so far? Yes, well, recent case law and dicta demonstrate the court's emphasis, again, on party autonomy 
and the legitimacy of loss limitation clauses as part of an agreed risk allocation structure. This is especially true in large projects. It should not be forgotten that these clauses do not always operate in favour of only one party. That is the essence of agreed contractual risk allocation. So then what are the key takeaways from that, I ask? And the answer I give is that uh, for clauses of this sort, UCTA may well feature prominently, and that while every case turns on its own facts and its own contractual terms, the equality of bargaining power between the parties, the parties' commercial sophistication and the availability of insurance are often decisive. On to our third and equally interesting topic. I want to talk about clauses excluding liability for consequential loss. There's a great deal in the books about this. Um, the Crowdace case that we all know from the past as to what, when you exclude consequential loss, you mean. Where are we on that now? Well, um, <clears throat> as you rightly say, Paul, these, these clauses are commonplace in both standard and bespoke forms and will usually be upheld, again, at least where there is no inequality of bargaining power and the claiming party had the opportunity at the time of contracting to insure against business losses. Uh, Johan, what's a business, what's a consequential loss? Well, you, you've asked me the question I, I think everybody wants to ask but doesn't dare to. <laughs> and well, to go back to, to Contract Law 101, I, I, you know, do, do we go back to the Hatley and Baxendale limbs and look at losses that will not occur in the ordinary course of things and are usually too remote? Well, this is, as, as you say, an old chestnut. Um, it's a matter which we come across all the time dealing in this sort of case. In the recent Transocean drilling case, the Court of Appeal considered this question and noted, as we know, that it has caused difficulties over the years. Importantly, the Court of Appeal there recognised that some of the older authorities which tried to grapple with this concept may no longer be good law. Um, Jan, how does it work in practice? Oh, I think it's fair to say that consequential loss as a loaded term is often a little bit of a red herring. And that's because most modern contracts, when professionally drafted, will define or at least try to explain consequential loss. And so what the court is often doing is looking for the meaning of that phrase within that particular contract. One has to look at that contract and its specific facts and apply the usual principles of contractual interpretation to understand what consequential loss means in that contract. Yes, and transocean drilling is a very good example of the point you've, you've just made. Um, this also uh, links in with modern contractual uh, principles of interpretation generally. Um, we're all familiar with Arnold of Britain, um, the need not to rewrite the contract. Uh, and in transocean, the court rejected a restricted interpretation on the twin basis that the meaning, firstly, that the meaning of the words were clear, and secondly, that the clause, that the clause in question favoured both parties equally. Yes, I, I think transocean drilling is a very helpful case, and I, I would encourage people to have a look at it. It is admirably short and only comes to 10 pages. And of course, when one applies the usual principles of contractual interpretation, there may be room for a restricted interpretation if the words used are ambiguous. And the judge, of course, will be mindful of any imbalance of bargaining power. But at the end of the day, it turns on the particular contract and the particular words used in it. Well, the key takeaways from that are very interesting. 
first and probably most important that there are some judgments of only 10 pages. Uh, secondly, that the modern approach is to interpret uh, exclusion and limitation clauses like any other contractual term, as we discussed in the first of the topics that we that we addressed. Secondly, to need that you need to look very carefully at uh, the specific contractual term. Um, there may be a strong smell of fish or red herrings about the older authorities which you look at to try and understand the meaning of consequential loss. For my part, I'm not going to stop looking at them, but I've got to be aware that they may not always provide the answer. The fourth and final topic which I hope we want to address is the fairness test for consumer contracts uh, under the 2015 Act. So, Johan, do you want to start on that? Yes, thank you, Paul. So we are now firmly in the era of the Consumer Rights Act 2015. And uh, well, at least if the consumer contract was entered into on or after the 1st of October 2015. So one may still get some of these cases trickling along that, that come in the previous um, legislation. But from now on... Need moving, to issue them pretty soon. <laughs> quite, yes. Um, and hopefully what the Consumer Rights Act will do is to make it easier to navigate this area of law, which was previously governed by the Unfair Terms in Consumer Contracts Regulation 1999 and the Consumer Contract Provisions in UCTA. I think it's fair to say that the, the previous framework was a little bit of a mess and really quite complex. Yes, and uh, this gave us the opportunity, didn't it, Jan, to rewrite the whole section in our chapter on consumer um, protection. And the Consumer Rights Act 2015, as you say, gives very wide powers to the court to intervene in consumer contracts. In some senses, it has limited application in the construction sector, which we usually cover, um, because it doesn't apply to business-to-business -business dealings. Um, however, there are very large um, premium residential projects and the like, um, with which number of us have been involved from time to time, which can involve very large sums of money in which um, an employer being a consumer and the contractor or consultant being a trader uh, can result in important um, limits on liability clauses. Yes. Well, the heart of the Consumer Rights Act is a fairness test. Jonathan, what is this? The Consumer um, Rights Act introduces an overarching fairness test. This applies to each and every term in a consumer contract, save for limited exceptions which have to be expressed in certain very clear ways, which ultimately relate to the core of the contract, which are beyond the discussion for today. As to the fairness test itself, a term, or indeed also a notice, is unfair if, and I quote on this point, it is contrary to the requirement of good faith, it causes a significant imbalance in the party's rights and obligations under the contract to the detriment of the consumer. And that is an extraordinarily white definition. You, if you think about the, the earlier themes in this short podcast, we've talked a lot about party autonomy and respecting the agreement of the parties. But here, and just to read to the, this very important definition again, it's unfair if contrary to the requirement of good faith... It causes a significant imbalance in the party's rights and obligations under the contract to the detriment of the consumer. When applying this test, the court is assisted by an indicative, non-exhaustive list of terms that may be regarded as unfair. So this is a so-called grey list. Unlike a blacklist, a trader may be able to show on particular facts that the term was fair in all the circumstances. 
Yes, and there is a level of consistency in the first three themes. You stress the importance of party autonomy in the minds of the court due essentially to the presumed uh, equality or proximate equality of bargaining power. This is not the case in consumer um, this consumer situation, so hence you've got a different approach. One of the interesting points here is, is the obligation, the statutory obligation on the courts to consider the fairness of a term even if the point is not taken by the parties. Uh, in considering this, the court will take into account the nature of the subject matter of the contract and all the circumstances existing when the, co when the contract term was agreed. And again, unlike the point um, that Paul made in his first takeaway on theme one, contra proferentem is relevant here. It's not relevant in the business to business. It is relevant in the consumer situation. Absolutely. I think in many ways, the Consumer Rights Act can be a, a box of surprises. If you turn up at trial in what can be quite a high value, um, albeit dwelling house dispute, even if this issue is not raised and not pleaded, the court itself has a statutory duty to, to look into it. Now, having said all of that, consumer law and unfairness arguments ha um, have been used to challenge adjudication clauses, but with very little success. And that is because courts have recognised and repeatedly emphasised that adjudication decisions are temporarily binding, do not restrict the evidence available to the consumer, or shift the burden of proof. Well, key takeaways there, there's two of them. Firstly, contra proferentum. Now you don't see it, now you see it again. Uh, secondly, that obviously this is going to be one a topic to watch with the concept of good faith flying around in a statutory uh, embodiment. Really going to be very interesting. And of course, that gives me a nice way to tell you all that work has already begun on the fifth edition of Wilmot Smith on Construction Contracts, um, or Wilmot Smith and Darling on Construction Contracts, as we think it's going to be. Um, we're already working hard on that, uh, and I think that the cases that are going to come up under the, uh, these, the 2015 Act are going to be a big part of the new edition. So thank you both very much for coming to share your experience with us. It's invidious for a general editor to express views about the administrative efficiency of his editorial team, but you two did get your chapter in first. So the fact that you're doing the first podcast, if I may say so, is just consistency of the great work that you've done, for which both Richard and I thank you very much. Mm -hmm.